0: The Team Performance Podcast with Spencer Horn and Christian Napier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Team Performance Winning Ways for Uncertain Times podcast. I'm Christian Napier, and today I'm joined by the man, the myth, the legend, the incomparable Spencer Horn. Spencer, how are you? Good, Christian, how are you? I'm doing well on not so much sleep, but I'm doing okay. Yeah, I hear you're you're up all night. What's that all about? Well, I, as you know, I do some work for the International Olympic Committee, and uh, for the month of October, I've been interviewing people in Beijing, 2022. The heads of all the different functional areas in Beijing, yeah. And Due to time zone differences, those interviews happen between about 7:30 p.m. and 4 a.m. Uh, my time, and uh, so it makes for a, a nice virtual jet lag. As I was telling you, you know, if it's uh, it's uh, it's like traveling without traveling. And, and so how do you manage that? How do you
1: manage the jet lag? What do you do to, to stay fresh? Because here you are bright eyed and bushy
0: tail, you know, three hours, four hours later. Uh, I've been taking naps in the afternoon <laughs> and and stayed caffeinated in the evenings. <laughs> Medication's my best friend. Yeah, well, I'm
1: excited to be here. I didn't get to bed till one. That's not as late as you, but I I flew in last night from uh, South Bend, Indiana. I was uh, traveling there doing some work with a client. It was very very enjoyable. Very good to be. This was this was only my third live event, and it was awesome. We had an enormous room. We had there's only 40 people, but pretty good for for these days. To, and we had one person per table. So it was a nice ballroom. It was really, and then a couple of people online. So it was it was pretty amazing. I have to ask you, how do people the the participants? How do they react to actually gathering in person for an event like this? So it, I thought it was amazing. I, I, I had three topics. It was all day. It was we started at 830. And we finished at five, with a 45 minute lunch and, and just a couple of breaks. And we did breakouts, we did discussions. And so everyone obviously put on masks and they, some of them had the entire time, but the desks were, were quite separate. But when we were uh, doing some processes, everyone just put on their masks and, and uh, it was great. Lots of discussion. People, I think, felt very comfortable. And I was, Christian, I was, I was emotional looking at the room. It was emotional to me to get together with everybody. It feels like a little bit
0: of normal coming back
1: yeah a little bit and, you know this is this is unfortunately going to be with us for a long time and so you know we, we can't rush back to 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 normal but but it it had a different dynamic because we weren't people weren't at the same table and the energy was a little more dispersed but you know it was still so much better than than just being virtual in my opinion i i mean virtual is great i i love having our guests all the way from england which we'll introduce here in a second but you know being face to
0: face has many benefits that's so interesting you say that i've heard a lot of that from my friends in beijing uh, who i've been speaking with over the last couple of weeks they've also been saying that they've missed the face-to-face interaction not just amongst themselves although they're all back to work and everything's okay there but uh, the inability for people from other countries to come and visit them whether it's to tour venues or to conduct workshops or things like this they definitely miss that uh, face-to-face interaction and I hope that uh, we'll be able to continue to have more face to face interaction in the future. In the meantime, we're going to do remote things. And that's what we're doing right now with our distinguished guest, Spencer. Why don't you introduce him? Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Christian. Good to have Michelle Theory with us. And
1: he's coming all the way from Brighton, England. And Michelle is the uh, managing partner for Valence Limited. And you'll correct me on the on the pronunciation. And I and I want you to explain where that title comes from and what it means, Michelle. Here in just a moment. But I am I, I'm so excited to have Michelle with us today. We met in November of 2018. We were both speaking at an international conference in in Warsaw, Poland. And Michelle has such a different skill set than me, and I have great admiration for. You know, I'll tell you a bit about it, moment, but. One of the things he was just, he was so personal and personable, and he invited me to go for a run with him. And Michelle is is not young, but I could not keep up with this man. He was giving me all kinds of tips about how to stay in shape. And, you know, I talk about running in the trails and mountains. This is a guy who inspires me. Christian, you know, we talk a lot about this. I watch him on, on social media, all the fun stuff he does running around the British countryside. He came to Las Vegas for a conference and we scaled a mountain together. It was, you know, it's only about a 5,000 foot peak, but the elevation gain, Michelle was pretty steep. Wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And he just crammed right up the that. And I'm like, (laughs) he's just running up this hill. So uh, somebody that, that I, that I admire that I enjoy and, it's it's created a friendship when we met. But let me just tell you a little bit about them, but he has extensive worldwide experience. You know, you and I were talking about our our travels. I mean, just tomorrow or he he's teaching in India, he's teaching on West Coast of the United States, East Coast, Asia, Singapore. I mean, he's working with companies all over the world. Fortune 100 organizations. Right now he's he's got a contract with the World Health Organization that he's working with and he focuses on you know, well, just first of all, worked in all these different cultural environments. And as someone who is very international, he he brings a, a, a world experience to organizational change. I mean, his, his company, they really are known as organizational architects. So, and he, he's really an authority on strategic and project program and, and really helping organizations change their, their culture. And he has developed a number of strategic uh, programs for major corporations. I'm talking about Fortune 100 organizations. You you wouldn't know them. I'm not allowed to say some of those names, but he has written many books. He has lectured widely. He, he works very closely with the Project Management Institute globally and really known as an authority in program management. And he's worked with chapters all around the world. It's a six million person organization. And so they really look at him as uh, someone that is a, uh, an authority in, in program and project management. So in 2006, he was elected as a PMI fellow. And in 2014, he was awarded the PMI Eric Jennett Project Management Excellence Award. I could keep going, but this is only the short version of his, of his curriculum vitae. Michelle, Welcome. Well, thank you very much,
2: Spencer. It's absolutely wonderful to, to be there and almost face to face with you. <laughs> we're talking about, about different countries. I mean, Christian is, is virtually in China every day. I'm, uh, last week I was with, with the, the West Coast US. Next week it's going to be India. Uh, so in, in a way that this non travel has allowed us to travel even more. I mean, uh, last week we were, we, uh, Sorry, I said last week I was on the West Coast. But it was a week before. Last week we were I, I was teaching a group of... Uh, oh, no, sorry, it was this week.
0: I can't
2: remember which date it is. There's no weekends anymore. There's no evenings, no mornings. I mean, this is crazy. <laughs> no, Monday. Monday I was teaching a sponsorship class for, for the uh, World Health Organization. I had people from all over the world. I had... A guy in Nepal, another one in Mumbai, a person, a guy, uh, one, one man was in Ethiopia, a lady in, in Niger. Um, I had three people in Copenhagen. I had two people in, in Geneva. I mean, it was really all over the place. It was amazing. It's, it's such an amazing feeling. And Spencer was talking about virtual versus face to face. And it, it is really amazing because I, w- I wasn't a virtual person at all. Uh, like 6 months ago you know and then in in fact i was on the in portland oregon in um, mid february and then in mid march i was in ankara in turkey and and that's when when i came back that the lockdown uh, happened in england and um, it it was amazing because i said oh, virtue we're not going to like that and i was really reluctant and then you know we the people started talking about zoom and then teams and all that and now it, it, it's amazing because I give all these classes on in virtual, and in fact, we're in the last six months we're, we're absolutely choker block until the end of the year uh, because all our clients that, that that started by postponing things suddenly decided, okay, we we have no choice, as Spencer said, we're probably in there for the long run, at least the medium term, um, and they said, okay, let's do it virtual, and so we had no choice but to get into the virtual world. And I became an an IT, I became the administrator of our Microsoft 365, you know, thing by default because nobody else wanted to do it. And and I started playing with all these things. And now, in fact, some of the comments I get, which are, I'm very happy about that. A lot of people, when they, you know, I do classes for PMI Seminars World, I do classes, as I said, WHO um, and all that, big pharma companies. And the thing, the message that I consistently get, we never thought it could be so interactive through
1: yep. a virtual class. Michelle, I'm getting the exact same thing. I mean, doing keynotes for 500 people online. And the trick is we have to learn these new skills like you are learning the technology, but making them feel part of the presentation. It just takes a little bit of practice, and it can be very, very powerful. There is absolutely magic that comes when you're when you're face-to-face, but because that's not possible, we get to be creative and adaptive because that's one of the things we want to talk about. We live in what's called a VUCA world, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I want you to explain that, but I was actually explaining this concept two days ago while I was giving a presentation to our organization in, in Indiana. And one of the things that, that I talked about that I want you to talk about is, is that in crises, it is, you know, this is the team performance podcast, right? But in crises, it seems that leaders of organizations typically would want to consolidate power. They want to control more things. And that is actually a mistake. It is during these times of, of uncertainty that we need to actually let go of control and empower teams more. What would you say to that?
2: Yeah, I would. I would totally agree. And uh, and in fact, it's a little bit makes me think of the um, the talk by uh, Dan Pink on, on uh, that's on YouTube or you you have it also on RSA uh, Animate. Uh, he talks about you know this letting letting go. And when organizations try to control too much, they they, they kill the motivation of people. And it's funny because I've seen so many people talking to me recently saying, oh, we're so happy to work from home. I mean, obviously there are problems. And a lot of people uh, like don't have a room, have kids at home, you know, and and work in their living room and all that. And that is very difficult. We are very lucky. Uh, I I don't know about you, Spencer, but I believe you also have a kind of office at home and you you have your place where you you, you can be, you know, not distracted and you have no noise and things like that. But the thing is, people felt free. They felt free to work whenever they needed. They, they could go get the kids in school, come bring them back at home, uh, <clears throat> go do their shopping during the day and then work in the evening if that's what they felt. And and the problem is that at the moment, you see organizations trying to, to kind of gain back the control. I mean, uh, some tools like... My, I love Microsoft, but but Microsoft has tools like Teams, etc., where you can monitor. You have the analytics; you can monitor how many people were on the, their their, their uh, email, how they were on Teams, and things like that. And and it seems that organizations are trying to regain that control, and it will kill this this, this innovativeness, this creativity that that has helped so many people during the crisis. Yes, a lot of people. It's hard for a lot of people. But there are other people that have just thrived in this crisis and 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 reinvented themselves in different ways and and created groups of people. I mean, in our own organization, we we have you know created the, this partnership, uh, virtual partnership that now works very well. And we have these social meetings every two weeks where we all meet on Zoom, you know, and 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 chat and discuss half about work, how you are, and things like that. And it has created even more of a community than we had before when we were in fact
1: more passive because we were waiting to be all together in the same place. Oh, to- I love that, I love that. And Christian, you were, we had a conversation with uh, a friend of yours that was in England. You said you were talking and you were actually being for the first time invited into their home. Look, we're right now in Brighton, England, in Michelle's home seeing, I can see a reflection of the garden outside. Yeah, if you want, I can I can show it to you a little bit. <laughs> that's that's the garden here. Oh, so that is a amazing!
2: garden, and we've got or or squash. You know, are decorated for Halloween.
1: And <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, that's something that we just didn't have before. That we're actually able to come into each other's homes and get to know each other on a personal level, which I think is so important for function of high performance teams. Yeah.
2: And I I totally agree. And and in fact, uh, we have experienced the same thing in in our training where uh, we used to train and we used to be all in the same room. And what we miss is the lunch where we ate together or dinner, you know, or sharing actual uh, social, having a social kind of conversation. But what we're doing now in our classes is. Uh, people are in their home. They have their cat jumping on them. They, they have the dog coming to get out or, or the kids running behind, you know, things like that. And then you ask questions. Are you at home? And, and at the beginning, a lot of people were putting in virtual backgrounds. And now more and more people realize that it's, it's not fun. It's That's, a missed
1: opportunity, it, isn't it?
2: It's an opportunity to show where you are and, and and it creates a whole discussion, but you have to interact with people. I think you, we have to, we, we forget a lot of times in organizations and, and we talk about it in our classes. When we talk about stakeholder management, we say your stakeholders are not resources. Your your team is not a resource. They are people and you should respect the fact that they are emotional. When a stakeholder tells you, well, I would like to have this. They already have a picture in their mind of what it's going to be, and it's very emotional. I remember I worked as an architect for many years. I was a construction architect. And, And people were saying, oh, look, this is Michel, my architect. Not an architect that I have hired. My architect It's like my doctor, my architect. He belongs to me. He's mine and I will be able to communicate with them. So creating relationships, I think the architecture has helped me a lot. Uh, Creating these relationships is very important with your clients, with your stakeholders, with with the people you work with. And I think people forget that.
0: You just mentioned that you were an architect and you use this term organizational architecture. I think Spencer, when you were introducing Michelle, and I also heard this term VUCA, and I'm curious what it means. That's a, that's a good
2: one. Um, VUCA was a term that was developed or coined, if you want, by the uh, U.S. military, and it means volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. So it's interesting because I have been I I, I did the master's degree um, and. Uh, in my master's degree, one of the, the things I studied was decision making, and one of the things I looked at was the different models of decision making. And it's interesting because we often talk about uncertainty, you know, and we talk in project management. A lot of people talk about risk, and it's linked to uncertainty. And uncertainty is linked to the lack of data. So basically, if you don't have enough data to 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 be able to predict what's going to happen uncertainty is high. So it's it's a balance. It's a ratio between the data you have and the assumptions you have to make. The more you make assumptions, the less you have data, the higher the uncertainty. Now, what, what I realized also is that there is another facet to, to, to that. It's, it's called ambiguity. And ambiguity, you may have all the data you want, but there are many options, many possibilities, and you have to make decisions. Now, The thing is, uncertainty is high at the beginning and lowers at the end of a project. For example, at the beginning of the project, I have a a good friend who, who does also keynotes. And he always says, at the beginning of a project, you know nothing, but you can do everything. At the end of the project, you know everything, but you can do nothing anymore. And so basically, that's the uncertainty. Now, ambiguity is more interesting because it goes up and down. It doesn't go... It's not a linear process because every time you have choices, every time a situation becomes muddled, you have to make decisions. The mistake a lot of people make is that when a situation is ambiguous, they try to get more data to help them make the decision. And it just confuses the issue even, even more. And so it's very important to, to distinguish between ambiguity and uncertainty. And now, volatility and complexity are really linked to that because the volatility is things are going very fast and changing fast. So you don't have enough time to gather data in order to make your decision. You have to make decisions on the cuff, basically. On the other hand, when the ambiguity, when the complexity is high, the complexity is is like um, the fact that you have multiple interfaces and relationships. It could be a very simple system, but it can be complex by its its interfaces. And the example I always give is a plate of spaghetti with oil. If you take a plate of spaghetti with oil, it's very complex because if you put a fork in it, you turn it, you lift it. You're never sure what size of bite you're going to have. And it's only because... The spaghetti's are—it's are, very simple, spaghetti and all. But the interaction between the different spaghetti's, the way the the, the, the friction or the lack of friction and all that—that that creates the complexity. That's why they always use flocks of birds or schools of fish to to describe complexity, because you, you you cannot predict how they're going to go away or fly. But the instructions are very simple. You have birds, and the instructions is simple. You don't get closer than six inches from the next bird, and not further than eight inches, for example. So as soon as a bird moves, all the other birds start moving. But you cannot predict what shape they will take. You can only see, but it's a very simple system. So the the key when you are in an ambiguous situation or complex is try to simplify. The key when you're in a volatile and and uncertain system is try to get more data. And I think people don't, don't realize the difference between those. And it's important when, when you, you you make decision, uh, when, when you do, you're in teamwork, you're a team leader, to understand in what situation you are, because the attitude you will have with your team will be very different. In one case, you're going to tell them, OK, go get some data so we have more data and better data to make the decision. In other cases... You will say, for example, well, we have all the data we need. Now we need to know, prioritize in order to make the best possible decision. So how are we going to prioritize our options? In other cases, when you're in a high ambiguity, high uh, uncertainty context, for example, well, then, for example, the, the, the COVID-19 is a very, very good example of that at the moment, is that you have to make decisions Measure the results as quickly as possible. And if the results are positive, then you continue doing what you're doing. If they are negative, you have to quickly move back. The danger is we're trying to plan a response to COVID-19. There's no real possible plan. You have to do something, but you have to measure it. And it's funny because a few years ago, I was discussing with the head of the uh, the um, uh, emergency response for the Red Cross in the UK. And he was the man who worldwide was was monitoring all that. And I asked him, how do you measure success when you come in a disaster zone, you know, like an earthquake or a tsunami or something like that? He said, Michel, we can't measure accurately. That's why we measure frequently. And I think that no. that's the key Thing is constantly measured.
1: Michelle, in your experience, you know, when you said something, you were talking about uh, volatility and decision making on the cuff. And I, I, I just a question came to mind. I imagine that in those circumstances, that there has to be the ability to to make decisions quickly, perhaps based on on an intuition. Right? Sometimes intuition. Well, it usually comes from prior experience. Now, sometimes that's your friend and sometimes it's not. My question is Do you notice that there are some people that struggle with that ability to make those on the fly decisions because they are so much, they rely so much on the fact before they make a decision that they maybe do nothing? So, it, does that happen? And then, of course, if you are that more intuitive, you don't just go with that. You measure frequently to make sure that intuition is correct and then readjust your, your thinking so that it's constantly being updated. It's kind of like machine learning for humans, right? Our, our intuition gets an upgrade as we measure and and learn that our decisions were the right ones or the wrong ones. So, yes. It, it, in fact, what happens is that making a
2: decision intuitively doesn't mean or, or making reacting very quickly. Uh, doesn't mean that you cannot, you you cannot be prepared, and in fact, you should be prepared. The the, the fact it, I I work with with Atlassian, a, a um, a programming company in Australia, and what they said basically, agility or the capability to be flexible and dynamic is not about not making a plan. It's about making a plan but being willing to change it quickly and decisively if the circumstances demonstrate that you can't go that way or you cannot go that way, continue going that way. And I think that's an important aspect of it is that you want to make plans and I'm, I'm using the plural purposely here. You want to make plans and then choose the one that you think is best, but keep the other ones in the background so that very quickly, if you realize this plan is not working, you switch and you implement another one. It doesn't mean because you're reacting quickly that you're not prepared, you should be prepared. And in fact, that's where I could come up with the concept of, and, and that works also very well in, in, uh, in teams. If you have teamwork, uh, taking an adaptive approach uh the concept of design thinking which which in fact was developed years and years ago uh larry miles at general electric uh, started talking about this concept uh in the the late 40s early 50s when he developed value engineering and value analysis and then uh edward de bono when he talked about lateral thinking he wrote the book on lateral thinking in the 60s this is the concept is that you have to separate the left side of your brain from the right side of your brain, and and allow your your imagination to run free. Allow um, allow the creativity, the innovation in in your brain to to be to go unbridled for a while, and then bring it back by making decisions by by choosing the best options. So there's a kind of imaginative or ideation, creative ideation process that should be then followed by a kind of feasibility elaboration process where you, you 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 decide which ideas are the best ones and in under the circumstances and which ones I need to implement
1: I think what what's important about that is, is it that doesn't go on forever. It's it goes on in a short time where you then test the ideas and then ad, adapt and adjust. Is that right? Yes. It's a series I, I, of
2: cycles, in fact. It right. goes on
1: forever, but as a series of cycles.
2: You diverge and converge and re-diverge and reconverge at every every step. And that is what really will bring and, and in today's world, because things are changing so fast, we need organizations to be innovative. We need organizations to be creative. We need them to come up with new ideas, new ways of doing things. And and if you apply a system like that, it allows you to do that. But that also means that you have to uh, as you said a bit earlier you have to be able to relinquish power and control let you know encourage divergent ideas encourage people to express ideas that maybe would not be what you would want but listen
1: to them so i I want to talk about this for a second because i think it's really important that on a team leadership podcast that we talk about that and i want to There's an example that I want to share of relinquishing control and how that actually helps teams be more productive and more innovative. Mm -hmm. And maybe you've heard of NPR, National Public Radio, here in the United States, which is, you know, a large organization. But doing, I, I think it was 2013, wasn't that when the kind of the Arab uprising in Cairo was happening? Mm -hmm. And the news organizations, you couldn't fly in and out of Cairo, but it was somehow they would, you know, drop people in and and, uh, NPR was just late to the game. They weren't able to get their news stories on time. And, you know, the all things considered was by the time they they had their reports, it was, um, you know, it was old news and the other news outlets were just beating them to the punch. So they sent uh, a, a team leader who was uh, they got on the ground there and they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have reporting. And one of the things that that really helped this this team change was the fact that they didn't have oversight from Washington, from headquarters at NPR. And they were able to say, here's what you know we we want to succeed. We want to make sure that we're, we're bringing news that's timely. And it was a small team. And they changed to we want to deliver this every 12 hours. They set you know, kind of a, a scrum, if you will, that, that our sprint, excuse me, a sprint that they were going to go for 12 hours and they were going to produce something every 12 hours. And they won awards for this. They went from kind of the worst to, to the best, but one of the things that helped them to succeed is they were in this VUCA environment with no oversight from, from the controlling micromanaging. Here's what we need you to do. And by when, and uh, they really created a cross-functional team that was highly, uh, highly effective. But that's just an example of how sometimes being cut off from yeah. the traditional management structure actually helps you be more productive.
2: And, and if you look at, at the, the, the armed forces, that's exactly what they've been doing in the last 20 years. They've moved from a very controlled type of approach to a very independent teams that could you can drop anywhere and, and they, will, they will thrive and they, they, will, they will make their own thing and they will exactly. do that they And the key to that is really clarify what are your long-term or medium-term objectives? Because the how is not important. How you get there is is left to the team. The important thing is why are we trying to do things? What are we trying to achieve? And that's that's what they have to focus on. Now, the team that's in the field uh, on the ground uh, they, may, they may find obstacles that you have even, not, not the slightest idea of at the top level. And and one of you're absolutely right. One of the, the big mistakes of, of managers is that they want to micromanage because they have been maybe an engineer or they have been a floor shop person or something, and they know how to do it. And I remember I worked with uh, Eurocontrol. Eurocontrol was the air traffic management body of Europe. And I was managing a, a large program that that was, you know, uh, trying to improve the capacity of airports, and and the program manager was certain that two of his project managers were incompetent. And then we had a, this workshop where we we put everybody in one big room, and in fact we had bought connects. Uh, I don't know if you you know the connects. Uh, it's a kind of yeah, building. those little uh, balls and, and magnets. Yeah, that's it. And, and we had, we had kind of the whole room to us and every team, depending on their size, had a different size connects. Some had 5,000 pieces and some had 500 pieces. And so they had to build this uh, during the day, but the idea was to show them about program management. So we looked at the big picture and we said, okay, they all were in, in, in the, they had, we had a theme that was a theme park. So we had pinball machines, we had, we had uh, roller coasters, we had big wheels, we had all these kinds of things. And each team managed in a very, very different way. In one team, uh, the, the the project manager was hands-on, working with the team, you know, getting their hands dirty, rolling their sleeves and all that. In the other team uh the 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 uh, The project manager was hands off, more directing the team. Something teams jumped into it, didn't even read the instructions, started building, other teams read all the instructions before starting. And the main feedback from that day with the program manager was all these manage, project managers were competent, but they all all had their own way of doing things which is different from yours. Yes. What he was trying to do is because they are not managing as I would have managed, they are not competent. And it's not the only experience I had in that, that sense. I've I had a few. And that is, I mean, the key point for managers is let your teams do their job. I mean, I was an architect and when I became a project manager, was managing large Projects. I managed a few of the large projects in Montreal, Montreal Casino, Convention Center, Intercontinental Hotel, things like that. My, my most difficult thing in the first few years was to let the architects do their job because I wanted to do the art. Arch- I wanted to play architect. You know, I had answers to their problems, but I could not tell them this is the way you have to do it because they were the architects and I was the project manager. My role was different. And when you get into management, a lot of people don't understand that they have to pull back and not interfere. They, they, need, they need to monitor. They need to make sure that everything, their responsibility is more the why. The team leader's responsibility is more, why are we doing that? What are we trying to achieve in the end? The how should be left to the team because they will be much more inventive than you are possibly, and, and they, 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 they will work
0: out together. So you mentioned a couple of terms I thought were kind of interesting. Uh, one was a design mindset. And then you also referenced the, the concept of uh, you have to think both left brain and right brain. And to me, that means I need to make sure that I got a well-rounded group of individuals on my team. I need to have creative people and I need to have kind of planning and operational uh, kind of people that can collectively bring both the left brain and the right brain. but Maybe you can explain a little bit more what you mean by this uh, design thinking mindset. Okay, well, thank you. Your, your question is absolutely perfect
2: because, in fact, one of the things uh, on which Miles uh, insisted uh, in, in the late 40s, early 50s, when, when, he, when he was a GE, was the fact that you need to have a multidisciplinary tool, uh, team. Sorry multidisciplinary tool, a team. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it <laughs> seems I have tools in mind for some reason. <laughs> so the, the fact that you have people coming from different backgrounds, I mean, if you, you take a bunch of engineers to solve a problem, uh, they will find an engineering engineering solution. If you if you take marketing people uh, to to solve the problem, they will find a marketing solution or a commercial solution. So you really have to have a mix of people and you have to have users also. If if you're developing a product, you have to have some of your users there. Uh, They will give you a lot of ideas. And when we're talking about left and right side of the brain, the, the whole idea is that from studies, I don't know how true it is, but the left side of our brain is more analytical and rational. The right side of the brain is more creative and innovative. The mistake we make is we have an idea and we immediately judge it. If somebody expresses an idea, you always find the reasons why it will not work. And that is the left side of our brain telling the right side, okay, stop, stop being crazy. You know, we have to we have to be safe here, we have to minimize the risk. Uh, we have to try to not to go too far because it's dangerous. And new ideas are dangerous. New ideas are dangerous to the established order they're dangerous to, to the people in power they're dangerous to so you know it, it's always this this idea the basic idea of design thinking is exp- let your brain expand let your ideas expand don't stifle them with the left side of your brain with rational analytical kind of approaches be imaginative be creative once you have all these ideas then Take the rational, analytical side of your brain to decide which ones are achievable. But don't try to mix both. Try to separate both. That's the whole idea behind the design thinking process. Now, it, 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 yeah, it's interesting because I, I worked for a, a very innovative company in, in Saudi um, about three years ago, and and their CEO had a very interesting motto. He said... I encourage you to make first mistakes. Now, that is a very deep thinking saying, because I encourage you to to take risks, to make mistakes. But also, I encourage you to make first mistakes, which means if you don't learn from your mistake and you make the same mistake a second time, then you have a problem. So take risks, but learn from them. So it's the, the whole concept of learning organizations that that Peter Sench, for example, has talked about in the fifth discipline or a number of authors is the idea of continually learning from what
1: you're doing. So take chances, take risks, but learn from them. So, I, you, you know, you talked about something here a, a minute ago. You said new ideas are dangerous to the established structure or people in power. And it is it's so true. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to give you an example of of how it what you just talked about worked and didn't in, in during the Iraq war in the United States, you know, we had those special forces groups that were, they're small in, in nature, so they're cross functional special forces teams that would go in and attack terror cells and they were very efficient at knocking those out but they weren't they weren't stemming the tide of any of the attacks against you know the you know population and the american forces that were there and it wasn't until they got someone from you know the government division over over finance and and somebody from fbi that could look at you know certain small behaviors somebody from cia who was analyzing you know big picture and all these things and you know, NSA, national security, and they actually embedded them into the teams instead of ha- having analysis and then handing it off to the special forces team. They were actually all in the room together and they had tremendous success. But what happened was bureaucrats and one of those agencies felt like we were sharing too much information and they pulled back. And of course, those teams then then disintegrated and they weren't able to be Fast-moving and innovative. How do you overcome that that inertia in organizations to 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 be top-down or waterfall-driven, uh, if you will? And waterfall means you know just very traditional. We plan it, and then we work our plan, and we're not adaptive and quick like we're talking about here, or agile like you're talking about.
2: Yeah. Well, the, the first thing I want to say, uh, Spencer, is that is that waterfall is not bad or good. Right, As we say in England, it's horses for courses where you have to have the right horse. I mean, you you would not put a quarter horse on a one mile race and you would not put a thoroughbred in a quarter mile race. Okay, so typically it's it's choosing the right the right approach for the right circumstance. And you can even use hybrid approaches or, or blended approaches. They work very well also. But the whole concept is that I think that uh, teams have to gain autonomy. Um, they, they, they have to, and 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 to gain that from management, the way I've the way I've basically worked it myself a lot of times, and I have had clashes with many bosses. That's why I've been working for myself for the last twenty years. In fact, too, I fired my boss too many times. <laughs> but but you have to you have to i think that the, the whole idea was always i tried to make friends with with one senior person at least and create a good relationship where that person trusted me and i trusted that person and and by creating that relationship they gave me more leeway and enabled me to to work my teams in a different way when that didn't work it it, it and it happens i mean uh there are cases where I left the company because I didn't feel comfortable with my boss. That that I felt that that person uh, was not giving me the, the the leeway I needed, or or was not allowing me to 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 have these ideas and to try to bring them to fruition. So I think it's it's very important as an individual that that you feel comfortable in your in your working environment. Now, in organizations, how do you you get people to 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 loosen their control. I think you have to demonstrate to them that results can be achieved and it's by proof. The proof is in the pudding and it's by starting small. I always say, you know, when I, when I teach people, when I give a class, I say, well, I'm showing you the picture on the box of the 5,000 piece puzzle. You know, now you are have to deal with the pieces on the floor and you have to sort them out. The advantage of seeing the picture, is that you now know how to make it work. If I threw the pieces on the floor without a picture, you wouldn't even know where to start. Having the picture and having a a, a map of what you need to achieve gives you a, a view of how you can do it. And if you're at a middle, for example, you're a middle manager, and you want to convince upper management. What I always suggest is start in an area where you feel you have control and you feel you can produce results. Start small. You know, people always want to change the world, but you change the world one piece at a time. And basically start small, build something and then show it. Market it. Uh, people so- are good at marketing themselves.
1: this volatile and uncertain, ambiguous world, I'm going to double down on what I know, which is control my team and hit my budget, because that's what I'm going to be held accountable for. And, and so if you're a, if you're a leader listening to this, this is what's happening to your, your teams is they want to, they want to consolidate control because it's, it's more uncertain. And so they're going to be, one of the things that I think we struggle with Michelle is how do I let go of my team? And realize that my team is really the organization at large, and I I get to be measured on the organization's success, not just on mine. We have this mindset that it's, you know, that we we hire individuals, we promote individuals, we reward individuals. But how do we shift that to where we're rewarding teams?
2: Well, it's interesting because it, it's it's easier said than done. I have two experiences I'm going to talk to you about. One was with Eurocontrol, where in fact um, we had we we had this this you know um, project manager in the team that wanted to do things his way and he wouldn't change right and he continued doing it and and his thing was I control my project and his project was the biggest project in the program and he thought that he was invulnerable at one point this our stakeholders. Said, well, this project has not produced anything yet because one of the things we were telling him is you have to produce deliverables that are that are measurable that 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 your stakeholders can see on a regular basis. And he kept saying, no, no, you'll see everything in four years. You know, trust me. <laughs> and at one point they just pulled his budget, and we had told him they were going to do that. Now the person I think that 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 helped me the most in, in that kind of thinking that you're talking about is my son. You know, I was, I was, I had I've produced a lot of IP in my life. I've written articles, I've I've done presentations, I've and and for a very long time, I was always trying to protect my IP. And 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 you know, don't take a picture of my slides and all that, and and, and don't copy, you know, no copies made, and I only give, you know, black and white paper because I fear that people, if they saw the colors, they would be able to reproduce it. And then my son was watching these bloggers. You know, he was a motorbike enthusiast, and he was watching all these bloggers. and And they gave thing they give things away for free. And I said, "Well, how do they make money? Why do you follow this guy? You know what's important?" He said, "Well, Dad, today it's not about how much information you have; it's about how much information you share." And that's when I realized I'm think I'm taking it completely the wrong way. Love it. It's it's not about Having hoarding information, hoarding you know power, it's about sharing it, and that's when I started you know completely switching my mindset and and realizing that that you know that's that's what it is today. And today, kids, they don't care about the IP, they don't care about privacy, they don't care about all these things. They just share everything <laughs> for good or for bad. I don't know. Well, we will be dead before we know if, with the consequences, <laughs> but who cares? <laughs>
0: Well, I've got a question for you. Um, Spencer mentioned the term innovation. You've talked about with teams, you need this uh, time to generate ideas, to be creative, and then you've got to get to work and put those uh, you know, put together plans and and execute uh, on those plans. Can you get stuck for too long in ideation? Brainstorming, coming up with all these Absolutely. fun ideas. How do you know when is the appropriate time to say, "Okay, we've thought about this enough. Now let's get to work."
2: Well, it's you can do it at any time, but it's it's a really good question because I always say it takes about if you have an hour, you should take twenty minutes for ideation, forty minutes for the elaboration or, or the analysis. It takes about double the time to to sit down prioritize and make the decision that it does for the ideation. Now, one thing with the ideation is you, you have to have a facilitator to do a good ideation or you have to be used to doing it because a pro, one of the problems is I, I do a lot of ideation exercises where I let people go on their own and it takes them 15 minutes just to get two ideas because they discuss each idea. and The idea is not to discuss, just put them on the board. That's you know. the
1: critical brain that you're talking about. The critical mind actually slows that creativity and ideation yeah. process. And so you got to help them get out of their way is what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so that,
2: that's a crucial point. And, but, but it's about, you're absolutely right, Christian. It, it, t- it takes more time to actually put it back together and make sure your options are working and your plan will be working. And, and you, you, you can put it back, you know, and, and you can question it. And also, I mean, one of the ways that management has to get agile is, is the way they do budgeting. At the moment, they do a lot, they do a lot of budgeting, like on a yearly basis, but, but projects, programs don't work on a yearly basis. You have to fund a program or you have to fund a project. And then you could, you could commit to a a first cycle or a first set of deliverables. And say, okay, when that will be achieved, we'll look at it again and then we'll fund your second cycle. But you commit to an overall, you know, budgetary envelope, say, for the whole program, but you say, I'm going to commit the resources or, or, or the money only on a cyclic kind of process. Well, what
1: we've, we've talked about a lot of interesting things and, and Christian and Michelle, we could go on forever. I don't think we covered all the things that we wanted to, to talk about. We talked about certainly more than teams, but it's, it's truly teams that make this, you know, this pro what we're talking about, work, the deliverables for those users, for the companies that bring value to to the companies. But um, I, I, I'm so grateful that that you came and shared your ideas. I'm I'm sitting here taking all kinds of notes. I feel like I'm in school, Christian. I don't
0: know about you. Oh, I feel the same way. Yeah, I'm like <laughs> let's go. Let's let's uh, let's schedule another class. I think you that's know? exactly what I'm yeah, I to do. That it's really it,
2: it, it's it's really fun. I enjoy that a lot. Yeah,
1: you know, and and uh, I think Michelle is fantastic. As a matter of fact, you know, you talk about the importance of relationships, and you know, I had an opportunity. Uh, uh, a fortune 100 company reached out to me and asked for a proposal. And I, and, and they reached out to me for a reason. They had seen me and, and they want to, they want me to come in and work with the executives. And as I was thinking about this, I'm like, what they're asking to do, I can do a part of it, but not all of it. And I, and I'm thinking who can I call to help me with this? And I thought of, you know, I called people and said, who do you know that does this? And, and I thought of Michelle, and I'm telling you, because of the trust that I have, because of your willingness to give that information away, and just because of how you are, you've actually embodied what you just talked about. And um, I think you have tremendous credibility in, in what you do and how you do it. And, and so I, I reached out to you, we're actually working on a proposal to this Fortune 100 company that's tomorrow, we'll see how it goes. But uh, maybe we'll report back that it didn't go so well. But I'm excited for just the opportunity to do that with you, Michelle. Next week
2: we'll have
0: the next episode. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So Christian, I turn it back over to you, brother. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure to meet you, Michelle, virtually, to have you on our little podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. If uh, listeners, they want to learn more about all the great work that you're doing and how you might be able to potentially help them in a very, very, you know, a, a number of ways, as you have a very broad uh, and deep skill set, what's the best way for them to reach out and contact you?
2: I think probably the best way would be at the moment LinkedIn, and uh, we have a website, but it's it's still in progress we're We're reworking it at the moment. So LinkedIn is probably the best way. If you type my name up on LinkedIn, you'll find me and you can get in touch with me. And if you say it's Spencer Hornsport podcast, I will definitely respond to you. I will not delete you.
0: <laughs> Perfect. How about you, Spencer? How can people reach uh, and, uh, get in touch with you? Yeah.
1: Say you can look at me on LinkedIn, Spencer Horn, but also email me Spencer at Altium leadership, A L T I U M leadership.com.
0: What about you, Christian? How can they find you? Well, uh, they can find me also on LinkedIn, Christian Napier, or they can, uh, email me at cnapier at gp4.com that's gpfou or visit the website gp4.com all right gentlemen uh it's been a really intellectually stimulating hour i really appreciate it listeners please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon